When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 83, The Rise of the Cistern. Monks have had an influence on Welsh history for a very long time. Going back at least to Gildas, a monk likely linked to the Order of St. Benedict, though we don't really know for sure, as most of what we know about him comes from hagiographies, or in other words, Christian biographies, which were written about 500 years after he lived. So the likelihood of what they say being fact is very minimal. We know very little about the lives in monasteries and abbeys in the period before the Normans arrived in Wales. This, like everything else, might be down to the lack of remaining surviving writings, or it may just be that we don't have a lot of written records from that period that ever existed. Often much of what we know comes from outsider viewpoints rather than from the inside. Take Bede, for example. His view of Christianity and Christian monks in Wales was quite different from, say, later descriptions of those same monks. We know early church varied in degrees from Catholicism, but the so-called Celtic church was more like a style than a doctrinal difference. Of course, in this period, those differences matter, but at the time, while it may have fundamentally made a difference, quite literally it was just for show. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about an order that's had a lasting influence on Wales in ways that we still may not fully understand. An order that starts out with a very strict code, but ends up looking a lot like the rest of the church in the High Middle Ages. Cistercians were known also as the White Monks, or in some cases, Bernadine. They were members of a Catholic monastic order founded in 1098 and named after the original establishment at Sito. In Latin, it means Cisternicium, in Burgundy near Dion. The order was led by Robert of Molas, or Saint Robert, as he is called. Uh, Robert was a young nobleman who became a Benedictine monk who seems to have felt that monks had lost their way and needed a reform to get back to the ideals of an earlier age. He was strict enough that some monks would not countenance his rule of their abbey and actually protested the idea that he would even rule an abbey with them. And in one case, he quit an abbey over the fact that he felt that the monks themselves were not listening to him well enough and not obeying well enough. By 1074, he was considered to be such a saintly man by many that his call to return to older ways, or in some cases an innovation of those older ways, became significant, and there was people who started to follow his ideals. Robert was called eventually to lead a group of Benedictine monks who were dissatisfied with the relaxed observance of their abbey, and they also desired to live a solitary life under the guidance of the strictest interpretation of the rule of St. Benedict, so that 
By 1075, they'd actually moved to Molesme under Robert's guidance. And of course, this is where his name comes from because he's being references being from there. Robert was succeeded by St. Alberect and then by St. Stephen Harding, who provided the real organization for the Cistercian rule. Uh, the new regulations demanding severe aestheticism. Uh, they rejected all feudal revenues, reintroduced manual labor for monks, making it the principal feature of their life. In other words, the idea was to get back to basics. The idea of monks was supposed to be a very sedentary life, one built around uh, minimalism in rejecting any sort of outward or inward image of doing something for power, doing something for you know, your lust or for your any sort of need that you would normally have. So thus they would eat very rudimentary food. They would dress in very rudimentary clothing. In some cases, they actually actively would later wear clothing that would even be harsh to skin to try and live a more Christ-like lifestyle. And they also took away one of the biggest concerns about the Benedictine monks was that they were acquiring a load of wealth because of the donations of people, mostly nobles, who were trying to get into good books of the church by buying them land, buying them abbeys, uh, funding different categories of things, so that that way it put them in better stead with the church and obviously with the afterlife, which becomes a bit of an issue, obviously, in the Middle medieval Christian religion and becomes a point of contention which starts out the Reformation. It's actually this whole idea about buying your way into heaven, which starts to get Luther upset enough to be able to start protesting against this. But even before that, even going back to the 11th century, this was actually the case. And there were people like Robert who were trying to point out that the church was becoming too wealthy, too worldly, and needed to step back from that. So one of the key points with the Cistercians was to try and move them out into rural areas, hidden from the world, isolated, and by doing that, they wouldn't rely on people, they wouldn't rely on the nobility, they would be kept and expected to do labor, they were supposed to be very strict in, in their observance of all of these features. Communities of nuns went so far as adopting the Cistercian customs, which were founded as early as 1120 or 1130, um, but they were actually excluded from the order until 1200 when nuns began to be directed spiritually and materially by these white monks, as they're called. The Cistercian government was based around three features. One, uniformity. All monasteries were to observe the exact same rules and customs, thus very minimalistic, very strict in order and rule. Uh, meetings were to be held with the abbots of all houses, and they were meeting at an annual meeting at the location and initialization of that same chapter house. Um, meanwhile, each of these houses would then be visited yearly by the founding abbot, who is basically there to ensure that things are kept as they're supposed to be. One of the problems they were running into because of this was some of the abbots weren't actually able to get to these houses 
or in some cases because of how they were becoming abbots via being nobles, they didn't necessarily care and they wouldn't go back and actually look after the abbeys. So a lot of unruly behavior would come out of that, in, according to people like Robert. Uh, the Cistercians may have remained relatively small had not the fortunes of the order changed by St. Bernard of Clave, who joined the abbey as a novice, along with about 30 of his relatives and friends in either 1112 or 1113. And by 1115, he had sent, was sent out as a founding abbot. And from that point on, the growth of the order was spectacular. No other religious body at that point was increasing to this degree. And at his death, St. Bernard's total number of Cistercian abbeys was 338, of which 68 were directly founded by him, and the order had spread from Sweden to Portugal, from Scotland to countries in the Eastern Mediterranean. In other words, it was all over the place. And part of the role and reason for that is because they would go into these isolated areas and then start to work towards making them better. And in the process of making them better, actually change the economic standpoint around them. Uh, in reclaiming some of this marginal land, for example, they increased production, especially of wool, in pastures in Wales and Yorkshire. And they also played a large part in the economic progress of the, the 12th century with the development of different farming and marketing techniques. All of this created a golden age during this century, of course, barely after its foundation. And so for the entire 12th century, they were probably one of the most dominant uh, abbeys and monks in the era. Of course, in the process of all this, in their creation of churches and creation of abbeys and collection of tithes, and all of their various commercial transactions in wool and grain and everything else, everything starts to go back down to basically being where the Benedictines are. So in actuality, even though the goal of the abbot initially was to create this return to form, return to the old ways, it actually becomes much more elaborate, much more fancy, much bigger. And in that way, it actually becomes very similar to what the Benedictines had become. And they will continue after this. Monks will continue to try and go back to the older ways. New monks will start up new uh, versions of these different orders to a greater and lesser degree. But of course, all the way through that, they will have created effectively a group that more or less does the same thing, which is they start off very much isolated, very much living rigid, restricted lives, and slowly but surely, the act, the assumption and creation of wealth would then cause that to fall off, and you would end up with people being appointed who necessarily weren't concerned about the religious order, but more concerned about creating a fiefdom for themselves, creating financial gain for themselves, and creating these abbeys that would become central locations for worship, for tourism, for all of these kind of things. So in a way, it, it's a self-replicating problem which they have going on here. So why, if this is all the cases, is so important to Wales? Because we're talking about a French order that, that obviously is important in France, but spreads out across the world. Well, at least the Western Europe and Eastern Europe. So what was so significant? Why are they so important? Well, it turns out that as they hit Wales, these abbots uh, 
are not just bringing with them a new doctrinal idea. They're also founding monasteries. So we get Tintern Abbey. We get uh, Strata Florida. We get more in North Wales and other places. They are linked with the Normans, of course, because they're French. So they come over with the Normans as the Normans are settling different things. Obviously, these religious orders having a French origin would be perceived by the Normans to be significant ways of pulling the churches in England and Wales and elsewhere into line so that they all sort of match up with what the Normans are worshipping, the Normans are doing. So there's a bit of that as well. There was a total of 15 Cistercian houses in medieval Wales. This included abbeys and all sorts of other buildings. Uh, the initial one was built in Tintern, which was the second in Britain. It was actually built in 1131, so relatively close to the major expansion of the Cistercians across the landscape of uh, Europe. The Shortly thereafter, there was one in Basingwork and Neath. And the one thing you'll notice about all these is they're very much in the Welsh marches and in areas controlled by the Normans. Tintern, for example, was actually founded by Walter Fitzrichard de Clare. Uh, he brings the abbots over from uh, the Diocese of Chartes, and they help found it, the Tintern Abbey, near Chepstow. Uh, and shortly thereafter, there are more and more abbeys expanding. And up until 1160, they were mostly being formed in the Welsh Norman areas. Uh, until we start to get the funding of Strata Florida, Strata Marcella, and the Abbey Cumhir uh, in 1164, 1170, and 1176, as each of those ones are built, they are being built in more Welsh areas. Uh, in fact, uh, Lord Resap Griffith, who we mentioned quite a bit in the last episode, was a key figure around the establishment of Strata Florida. Because of him, the monastery was founded, as I said earlier, in 1164 by a knight, a Norman knight, Robert Fitzstephen. They actually bring monks from the Whitland Abbey, which is in Camarthen. Uh, they then run Strata Florida, and that is where the settlement is established. It was built near the river Fleur, uh, which is where the name Florida in Latin comes from. And it was established initially a little distance away from the, where the site that is now exists. It was actually funded by Richard de Clare, who was the uh, knight who controlled, or the lord of Cardigan Castle. So, again, it was a Norman who initially funded or bankrolled it, but again, it, it was influenced by the Welsh and is seen traditionally as being Lord Rees, who maintained and kept it going. Um... In the later instances, as we get into the 1160s and the 1170s, as these different areas are being built up in more of the independent areas of Wales, and they're being invited by the princes in Powys, in Gwynedd, and places like that. And they're coming from the Whitlands and the Strata Floridas and all of these places, and they're settling in, in these new colonies, for lack of a better word. Um, Strata Marcella, of course, is is in Powys. Uh, in uh, Caerleon, we have Llanteran. Um, and if all of these things are slowly being built up in and around 
the areas. And what also becomes significant is we start to see that the dynasties of these areas start to bury their dead there. You start to get kings and princes that are being laid to rest there, which I think is an interesting factor, and it becomes an important one. Strata Florida becomes a significant area where the princes of Gwyneth are buried, and in fact is referenced to being the place which harbors our enemies by King John in 1212. So they've integrated themselves into the Welsh mindset and into the Welsh identity, which is quite fascinating to see how monastic tradition combined with the Welsh and became seemingly a part of it right up to the end of independence. And beyond, those abbeys survive, obviously, right up till the dissolution, which comes later. Monasteries, of course, play an important social role in everywhere they go, and that's something that we haven't really talked about a lot, is there is a dynamic which comes about where they are the social services of the medieval period, the place where you go when you're sick, the place where you go when you're poor, um, to get help. All of these things are very uh, interesting, and I think uh, kind of sets them apart, which is part of the problem when the dissolution of the monasteries come in later, is that you dissolve the one aspect of social justice and social protection for the poor. And as well, you've replaced it with a Protestant work ethic, which thinks very differently about those kind of things. And we'll see, and in later times, probably talk about what the differences are and why this becomes a major issue in Wales. Obviously, Strata Florida is actually built up by Normans, and same thing in Tintern, that the abbeys in North Wales are not, and they're built by the princes in the northern kingdoms, and they're important and they're significant. And because of them, we have a lot of documents that we may not have had. They carry out a lot of the scholarly translations. They carry a lot of the weight in carrying forward so much of the documentation that we have in this, you know, current time. We wouldn't have most of this without their willingness to work for it. And of course, if you've ever been to these old monasteries, and abbeys, you will see that they were fantastic places. Like Strata Florida, for example, is a massive structure. It was obviously an important location. This is where some of the the princes would be buried. You would have so much significance to it that even today it is still considered to be a Welsh place, even if it's very much not a Welsh religious organization or a Welsh religious entity as such. And the same thing in Tintern. Tintern is very much associated with, with Welsh history, but yet it is not a Welsh abbey. So the Cistercians, even though they don't last long, because really they're only around for about 100 years before they effectively go out of favor and become much less, they're, they're, they really sort of disappear out of Northern Europe after the Reformation. And they don't really have a place after that point. But until then, you have this massive amount of work that they're doing, and they have created these wonderful buildings that we have. They're very elaborate. Again, it goes against everything that they start out trying to do, but you can tell 
that as they're being founded, they're not being founded by people who are who are lacking in funding. The the Abbey in Strata, Florida, for example, probably was a fantastic looking building. The entrance, the what survives, is an amazing looking section of building. But the reality of it is, what we have is so little because by the end of of course, the Reformation beginning in England, you have Henry going around and seizing abbeys and monasteries. And one of the very first thing they do, of course, is disband them. But they also, in the process, in some cases they keep them. In some cases they just abandon them. In other cases they, they proactively destroy them. And a lot of that loses its significance because of it. We almost lose a lot of documents and a lot of things because of this this work. Now, we can talk about whether that's good or bad, and I, I would argue, obviously, it's bad, but it creates a situation where records we may have had may have gone missing because of that. You know, the, the, the sites of the princes and kings of Wales go missing in some respects because there's no one looking after them anymore. That takes away from what we have. It takes away from the significance of what we have. So in that way, it, it, it's a significant downturn. The other thing, though, that they did, and I think one of the significant things we have to look at, is because of their interventions in Wales to create pasture land, to create the wool manufacturing and the marketing of that, it starts to make Wales a much more important place on the landscape of Britain. Because to this point, as we've talked about before, until the Normans come, there is no coinage in Wales. It is not made by the Welsh princes. It is not made by the Welsh kings. There is some coinage which is commissioned, which is like a medallion for Hulda, but really that's more about him kind of celebrating his, his kingship. But it isn't a coin, and that, that's the problem. There's not really coinage. And because of that, you don't have a lot of records of things that we can look at. Like, so much of material evidence that we find is based around metal, and it's based around stone. And in Wales, you don't have a lot of metal because you don't have that. So there isn't as much material to find, especially after the Romans leave. And so what we start to get with the intervention of, of these monks is a much different Wales from what we see before that. The, the, functionally, the way the place starts to work is quite different. And of course, this is also being brought in by the Normans, who are moving into the south and creating a different functional society down there. And it's creating this this split between, as we've talked about before, between the northern Welsh and the south Welsh, this consideration that somehow the, the, the more northern parts, because they maintain the language, they maintain society in a more northern and more independent version is somehow more significant and better than the marsh welsh or the the southern welsh and so we start to get more of that patriotic zeal going on as we go along but yet in the meantime here comes these french monks who are bringing in a very french ideal and a very much a roman catholic christian ideal and are actually pursuing something which again spreads this idea of the Norman concepts of Christianity, the Norman concepts of, of order and buildings and all of that. And it gets, instead of being you know, repudiated by the Northern Kings, it actually becomes something they want and something they ask for and something that they get 
because it gives them the prestige that they need. It helps them get the money they need, more importantly. And at this point in time, what we have to remember is that the princes in Wales are starting to become more and more like their Norman overlords that, as we said last time, they are now giving fealty to. They're starting to speak French at court. They're starting to be fighting in ways that are much more like the Normans. They're they're looking more like a Norman lord than they looked before. And even to the point where, they, as we said last time, they've changed the name from being Britons to being Welsh or Cymru. And these changes are all happening around this time period. There's a massive sea change in how the Welsh themselves perceive themselves as well as the outside world perceives them. Because, of course, at this point, we're starting to have Welsh soldiers into the English military. They're going and fighting in places like France. They're fighting in Scotland. They're fighting their own kin in Wales in wars for the English kings. So they are starting to become integrated with the larger society in Britain again. And in the process of that, it's creating this this concept of what a Welshman is versus what a Welshman was, or a Briton, to be fair, And I think we're starting to see this emergence of rather than an independent nation state, but rather something that gives fealty to and recognizes the supreme overlordship of the English. And this will continue to progress as we talk about it. And we'll see much more of this later on. But I think that's something that we have to keep in mind is that we we're no longer talking about independent kingdoms that can do what they want. We're starting to hit this point where they're completely dependent upon the English for protection, for, you know, resolving issues with other kings and princes. You know, negotiations are going to happen. And with the Plantagenets now on the scene, they are going to use the fact that the Welsh inheritance is so divided to their benefit and they're going to be aggressive about it and they're going to use it as a way to flip various kingdoms to their own benefit and in some cases of course assume them back into the Welsh marches and take them over and slowly but surely isolate Gwyneth to the point where it is the last major kingdom left and that's where we're headed at this point this is the end game to to use a quote uh, for the Welsh independence movement at this point in Wales. And we're about to hit the Llewellyns. We're about to head into the end and rise of the biggest portion of Gwyneth's power. But at the very same time as their power is increasing, their actual overall control is decreasing and the actual way that Wales is growing is actually assuming itself into the English control. And as we said before, we're now no longer talking about Normans, we're talking about English, because they're no longer separate, and they're integrated, and with the Plantagenets, it's even more so, and we're about to head into this, and hold on to your boots, because things are about to get very sad, and very harsh, and then get better, and then go right back into that again. So, until next time, everyone, take care, we'll talk to you later, have a good day, bye! been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.